Welcome to UBS On Air. Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to the UBS On Air podcast and thank you for joining us. On today's podcast, we are going to continue our series of conversations with Family Advisory and Philanthropy Services. Today's topic will focus on scholarships and I am pleased to be joined by Julie Binder. Julie is a senior strategist with the Family Advisory and Philanthropy Services team. Now, the mission of this group is to serve as a thought partner to exceptional families. We here at UBS do understand that your family's needs extend beyond the purely financial, so we take a strategic and sustainable approach to managing your wealth for continuity. This team works with UBS financial advisors and their clients to clarify and articulate your shared values and goals, bridge the gap between generations to perpetuate your family legacy, develop a well-thought-out plan to support your family goals, and philanthropic aspirations. So just some quick background on Julie. Julie has been with UBS for two years and is based in New York, and Julie works with clients from the Northeast. In her previous role, Julie worked with philanthropists across the country for over a decade. Some additional background about the team. The UBS Global Philanthropy Services team consists of around 50 client-facing staff who are based across the world and work directly with UBS's most valued clients, helping them, in short, to achieve their philanthropic aspirations. So Julie is here with us today to discuss how donors can get involved with scholarship funds. Education is a significant funding priority for many individuals, and often donors want to directly help students within an academic institution. So with that, we are going to spend a little time today discussing how a donor could create a scholarship program. So, Julie, first off, I do want to welcome you to UBS On Air. Thank you for joining us on the podcast today and very much looking forward to discussing scholarships with you. Thanks, Dan. I am looking forward to it, too. Absolutely. And I know we have a lot of items we want to hit on during our time together today. Julie, my first question is, though, what should someone be thinking about first when they decide they want to fund scholarships? That's a really great question, Dan. Whenever I speak with donors who say they're interested in creating a scholarship program, I encourage them to really answer three questions for themselves first. That is, what kind of financial commitment am I willing to make and over what period of time? The second one is, what is my desired level of involvement, both initially and in the future? And then finally, how much control do I want over selecting the scholarship's actual recipient or recipients? Okay, so Julie, that seems like a very good place to start, though. How do the answers to those three questions affect how they think about the scholarship? The answers to those will actually help determine if the donor needs to create a charitable vehicle like a private foundation in order to create their program, or if they're going to partner with an organization that has its own tax-exempt status. It's really important to remember that in either case, the, re- the donor receives the tax deduction for their gift, and then they can continue to support students over time. So perhaps we can dive a bit deeper and break this out a bit. So maybe we can start with the first question that you mentioned, Julie. What kind of financial commitment am I willing to make, and over what period of time? 
Why does that matter? You know, Dan, it matters for a number of reasons, but perhaps most crucially, your answer determines what your options really are. So many vehicles or programs will have minimum financial commitments that they require from the donors they're working with. The more significant your gift will be, the more students you can help, either all at once or over a sustained period of time. Now, that isn't to say that your only options require huge amounts of capital, but as a general rule, the more money you are dedicating to your scholarship program, the more actual control you have over the level of involvement you or your family have, as well as more control over the actual selection of recipients. Well, that makes a lot of sense. So once they have determined how much money they want to set aside, you mentioned involvement and control next. Julie, how is that affected? So involvement and control often go hand in hand. Generally, when someone is moved to set up a scholarship program, it's because there's some component of education that's just so important to them. It could be that there's a family member or legacy they want to honor, a specific institution they want to support, or a particular group of students that they're interested in funding. For some donors, being able to define just that rough set of parameters will be enough. They might decide that simply narrowing down the criteria, perhaps students attending a particular college or university or who come from a particular community, is enough for them. For other donors, though, there might be an interest in selecting the actual recipients who will be the beneficiaries of the scholarship from that whole pool of students. So perhaps we can talk about some options now, Julie. If you decide to go the route of creating a scholarship program, how would you actually set about doing that? It's a great question, Dan. This is where the answers to our previous questions will outline what our options are. Perhaps it would be helpful if I gave some insight into what the legal requirements are for a scholarship, no matter the vehicle. Yeah, Julie, that would be a great place to start. Okay. So for a formal scholarship program, donors are generally receiving an upfront tax deduction for their gift, so they need to follow IRS guidelines. And there are six key points to remember here. Number one, the scholarship needs to be open to a broad charitable class. And what I mean by that is there can't be a fixed set of recipients that you could identify when the scholarship is established. Number two, the selection criteria must be objective, non-discriminatory, and align with the mission of the scholarship. Three is that you need to establish um, a selection committee. And number four, there need to be systems in place that can ensure that any requirements of a scholarship are met by the recipients. And what I mean by that is, for example, if you require a 3.0 GPA from the students, you need to be able to track that. The next point is marketing. You need to not only make your scholarship available to that broad charitable class of individuals, but you also need to actively promote your scholarship so they can find out about it. And number six, finally, you need to establish policies and procedures that you will follow if the funds are misused. Well, Julie, as you outline all of those steps, it does seem a bit overwhelming. That sounds like a lot of work. How would one go about doing all of that? Dan, you know, it is a lot of work, but this is where we go back to those initial three questions we asked and looked at involvement and control much more closely. So scholarships in general have to meet that criteria, but the donor making the gift doesn't always have to do it on their own. If you don't want the burden of the administration, 
administration and just want to benefit students at a particular school, you can consider partnering with an institution. In some college and university systems, you can actually establish a scholarship fund with as little as $25,000. You can then work with them to define the broad criteria like undergrad or graduate students, new or returning, financial need, or academic criteria. They will then take on the work of promoting, selecting the students, and administering the program for you. Depending on the university and the size of the gift, a donor might also be invited to sit on a review or selection committee reviewing those first rounds of application. It's a wonderful compromise for those donors who want a degree of control but might not have the time or the budget to run a large program themselves. Another option is that you can also make a gift more broadly to the university's general scholarship funds with no minimum funding requirement. For donors who want students broadly within a school community and a smaller dollar amount, that can be a really good option. Yeah, Julie, that does seem like a very good option. Now, what happens if a donor wants to be involved in the final selection of the students? Do they have any options there? Great question, Dan. So this is actually going to take us back to that financial commitment here. In some cases, the cost to create and run a full scholarship program can be prohibitive. Remember, there's a lot that goes into defining the program, marketing it, creating the application, and then reviewing all of those applicants when they come in. If the donor is committing a significant amount, for example, say a million dollars or more, they can explore setting up a private foundation, creating the program according to the guidelines we discussed, and applying for advanced approval from the IRS. Then the staff, board, or the family members of that foundation can run all of the components of the scholarship themselves. They would have the final say in who the recipient or recipients are of those scholarship funds. Well, that takes us back to time, though. So it seems for someone to go this route, they need to have the time to commit to doing it correctly, right? Exactly, Dan. And this is, again, why we have those three questions in our minds. So they need to execute on the program following all of the guidelines they laid out. They also need to make sure they don't run afoul of any regulations. And what I mean by that is that the people selecting the recipients can't receive any economic advantage from the process, people related to applicants should not serve on the selection committee, and any real or perceived conflicts of interest should be addressed in the scholarship program regulations. Julie, it seems like I'm hearing you say that there is a low-touch, low-control method of supporting scholarships as well as a more time-consuming method that really does give you the control and input. Is there any type of middle ground that you can speak of? So glad you asked. There are actually a few options for donors um, that want to go the route of a formal program with more input into the selection but with fewer headaches. For one, um, there are online grant management systems that can be customized to make applying easier for the students and reviewing easier for that foundation staff or board. Remember, the work isn't all tedious, so imagine the joy a donor might have in listening to or watching three-minute performance pieces from students or reading essays. It can be incredibly rewarding. There are also nonprofits that exist to create and run scholarship programs on behalf of donors. The donor could partner with an organization like this, and then the nonprofit will take on the work of marketing, 
reviewing, and presenting you with a condensed pool of candidates. They can give you either the full list of candidates and applications, or they can even provide you with an agreed-upon number for your consideration. For example, you could ask for the final 100, um, and of those, you choose 10 recipients. So over the years, I've spent a lot of time with your team, Julie, and I know that you all often speak about donor-advised funds. Is that an option here? Yes, and great point. So if you have a donor-advised fund account, unfortunately, you would not be able to establish a scholarship where you pick the final applicants, but you could take advantage of any of the other options we discussed. Great. That's good to know. And Julie, I know we're beginning to come to the end of our time together. So before we close out, maybe a couple of more questions I can run by you. How about a quick rundown of what those were again? And if someone is interested, how can they go about learning more? Absolutely. A great question. We actually have a white paper on establishing scholarship funds. I would encourage clients to speak with their UBS financial advisor to get a copy and explore what type of structure is right for them. So just to review one more time, get clear on how much of a financial commitment you are looking to make, how involved you want to be in the process, and how much control you want over the final selection of scholarship recipients. From there, you can partner with a nonprofit institution like a college or university or a public charity that has a mission centered around creating and administering scholarships. You can also create a private foundation and design a formal program with IRS approval. Remember, any gift that you make to establish a donor-advised fund, a foundation, or a scholarship is an irrevocable gift to charity, so make sure that you've discussed your liquidity, longevity, and legacy needs with your UBS financial advisor before you make a gift. Well, Julie, it was terrific catching up with you on the UBS On Air podcast today, and thank you for spending some time and sharing insights with our listeners on the topic of scholarships, and hope we can do it again soon. Absolutely, Dan. Thanks so much for having me. And again, we have been joined today by Julie Binder, Senior Strategist with the Family Advisory and Philanthropy Services Team here at UBS. From UBS On Air Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients, UBS Financial Services, Inc. offers investment advisory services in its capacity as an SEC-registered investment advisor and brokerage services in its capacity as an SEC-registered broker-dealer. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. It is important that clients understand the ways in which we conduct business, that they carefully read the agreements and disclosures that we provide to them about the products and services we offer. A small number of our financial advisors are not permitted to offer advisory services to you and can only work with you directly as UBS broker-dealer representatives. Your financial advisor will let you know if this is the case, and if you desire advisory services, we will be happy to refer you to another financial advisor who can help you. Our agreements and disclosures will inform you about whether we and our financial advisors are acting in our capacity as an investment advisor or broker-dealer. For more information, please review the PDF document at ubs.com forward slash relationship summary. 